Well, it's great to be able to worship with you today, those of you who are here in Troy, and I am so honored to be invited into your home, those of you who are watching with us right now through Faith Troy at home. If you were with us last week, um, then you may remember last week we talked about the fact that all of us have this need uh, to be known, and we talked about how easy it is for us um, to want to be known for a thing, and, and really that's not bad. Um, we said that's not bad. That's actually kind of good. Everybody wants to be known, um, hopefully, for something like being a good father or a good husband, a mentor or a leader, uh, a good wife, um, a good mother, right? A good, a good daughter, a good child, um, a successful business person, right? That's normal. That's natural. That's, um, that's actually great. The problem is when there's these gaps that develop between what it is that we want to be known for and who we really are, because it's into those gaps that all of us, right, we begin to hide and we begin to, to protect and we begin to cover uh, and we begin to excuse. And, and we put this image out there of ourselves for, for everybody to see and everybody to be impressed with um, that doesn't quite match up with who we really are. And as tempting as that is for all of us to do, the problem with that is that all it does is just re-cement in our minds that there really is nobody who actually knows me for who I really am. And so, like we said last week, what we all really need is a place to belong, where we can be known and accepted by a community of people who know us for who we really are and accept us for who we really are, but, and this is the key, but who also love us way too much. They, they just love us far too much to just leave us the way that we are. Now, we also learned last week, and this may have been a surprise for many of you, that, um, that church, actually this, is the place where this is supposed to happen the most. Not in this room, but as a result of being connected in this room. That, that, that we as a church are supposed to be communities of men and women and students and teenagers and kids, all one anothering one another, trying to figure out what does it mean to, to actually live as a follower of Jesus in this world and what it does it mean to actually be connected to one another. Because everybody, right, everybody, every preschooler, every middle school student, every elementary kid, every high school kid, every college kid, every adult, every grandparent, everybody needs a place where they belong. And that can't happen. Right? That can't happen without you. And so I'm hoping that this summer that you will look at your calendar and you will find a couple of weeks, a couple of weekends, sometime in the course of this summer where you can help out, where you can help out with our next-gen ministry, with our kids, with our students. Just scan this QR code and, and all this commits you to is a conversation with one of our staff. When you do this, you begin, even if it's just a couple times, you begin, you take that first step towards being involved in a life-on-life -life relationship. And when that happens, that's when the church really becomes the church. That's when the church becomes your church. And it's also when the church actually becomes family. Now, in Mark chapter 3, um, we discover that Jesus is in a home. And uh, Mark tells us that Jesus is actually inside of this house. And in verse 31, Jesus' mother and his brothers, they arrive to the home where Jesus is. And standing outside of the home, they actually send somebody in to call Jesus. Now, a crowd was sitting around Jesus inside the house. And they said to Jesus, Jesus, your mother and your brothers, they are outside looking for you. And then Jesus says this. He says, who are my mother and my brothers? Now, 
Obviously, this is a rhetorical question, right? Because everybody in the world knows that Jesus' mother is Mary, right? Of course, Jesus knew that. And most of us even know, many of us know, that Jesus has a couple of brothers, two of which are James, as well as his other brother, Jude, right? But then Jesus responds and he says this, looking at the people who are inside the house, those seated in a circle around him. Do not miss this. This would have been his closest followers. He looks at that group of people and Jesus says, here, right? Right here. Here are my mother and brothers. Whoever, Jesus says, whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Now notice that for Jesus... His followers, right, Jesus' followers, the people who are following him, those followers are Jesus' community, right? They are Jesus' family, right? Think about how is it that Jesus always refers to God. He always speaks of God as Father. And we discover in this section of Scripture that Jesus refers to us as brothers and sisters. Now, Mark, in the text here, uses a very, very specific word. He uses the word adelphoi, which translates as brothers and sisters. And it's a very specific word. And this word is used by Jesus, but also by all the authors of the New Testament to give us a picture and an understanding of the type of relationship that each of us has individually to Jesus but also the type of relationship that Jesus actually wants us to have with one another. In fact, it's used more than 340 times just in the New Testament to convey the picture or the image or the idea that Jesus wants us to have as we are connected to one another and to him. Now, for us, when we hear the word community, right, a whole bunch of things pop into our minds, right? A community um, can be a school, um, community can be your gym, um, community can even be the place that you work. You might have a friend community at work. Um, you, you may even, um, you, you may have a community at someplace else. You may be, belong to an organization that is community. Certainly a group of friends can be a community. Um, but for Jesus, for Jesus, the type of community that he wants us to experience as his followers, at least his intention is very specific because Jesus actually wants us to experience community as it relates to family. Now, this sounds really warm, right? Really friendly, very calm, right? Very peaceful, very emotional. Um, for some of us, if we're honest, it sounds a little too touchy-feely, right? I understand that. But this is actually a very, very radical idea that Jesus is conveying right here. And this is, in fact, one of Jesus' most radical teachings. But to understand that, we need to understand a little bit of the context of Jesus' world in the first century. First, Jewish culture in the first century was known as a strong group society. Now, um, I'm, I'm going to read you a definition right here uh, from a gentleman by the name of Bruce Molina. Um, he is a Ph.D. at Creighton University. He's a Jesuit scholar. And he defines strong group societies like this. He says, a strong group society is when the individual in the group perceives themselves to be a member of the group and responsible to the group for his or her actions, their destiny, their career development, and their life in general. The individual in the group is free to do what he or she feels is right and necessary 
only, don't miss this, only if that action is in accord with group norms and only if that action is in the group's best interest. The group has priority over the individual. Now, some examples of strong group societies that probably many of us are going to be familiar with um, would be Asian culture, um, African culture, Middle Eastern culture. Those are all examples uh, of, of strong group societies. But most of us um, in this room right now, maybe uh, probably many of you watching right now at home, um, most of us are actually from a, a Western European descent. And so what, what we're much more familiar with is what anthropologists call a weak group society. Now, a weak group society is where the individual has priority over the group. Because the truth is, for most of us, we just assume, right, that, that our own desires, our own preferences, our own self-determination, um, our own happiness especially, we just assume that all of those things are more important to us individually than they are for the group, right? But that's only because most of us have been raised in a weak group society. And because of that, we actually view strong group societies not only as being weird, but if we're honest, we also think of them as being a little oppressive as well. Now, perhaps the best example of this is actually found from an amazing television show called Star Trek. Perhaps you've heard of it. Um, and one of the characters from this fantastic show is notoriously from a strong group Society. I'm going to give you a hint as to who this character is. He very famously said this. He said, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. Fellow nerds, who is it that said this? Anybody? Spock. That's right. 1982, The Wrath of Khan. Gene Roddenberry, don't miss this. Gene Roddenberry knew that the only way we would believe this statement is if it came from the lips of an alien. Right? Because it's so completely foreign to what any of us have actually grown up with or experienced in our world. Now, Jesus' world was also a strong group society. And in that society, your primary group was your family. Which brings us to the second thing that we need to understand about Jesus' world in the first century. In Jewish culture, in the first century, family was actually determined by the father's bloodline and not by marriage. Right? This is called a patrilineal family. Which means that your family was from son to son to son and only on the son's side. Right? Which sounds so strange to us. Because technically, in a patrilineal family, your spouse is not a part of your family. Right? Marriages in the first century were, for the most part, arranged. And that doesn't mean that romantic love wasn't a part of marriage in the first century. It absolutely was. But marriage was more often about what was best for your group, right? which in their world turned out to be your family, than it was more about your own personal happiness or emotional well-being, right? And so consequently, and here's the point, the most intimate and emotional relationship that you would have in the first century as an individual was with your sibling and not your spouse. 
In the same way that you and I just kind of assume that the most intimate relationship we will ever have or have or will have in the future will be with the person we are married to, in Jesus' day, people would just assume that your most intimate relationship, if you were a male, would be with your brother, and if you were a female, it would be with your sister, right? So don't miss this. What does Jesus call his followers? Adelphos and Adelphae. Brothers and sisters, the most intimate picture possible of relationship in Jesus' world. Now, the point of all this, right, the point of all this is that Jesus actually calls us as his followers to function like a strong group style family. And this was a radical idea in Jesus' day, but not radical because Jesus wanted his community to function like a strong group. In fact, that wasn't new. Right from the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 1, we discover that every single one of us, that God says, he says this, he says, let us make humanity in our image. Right? Let us make humanity in our likeness. And long before Jesus, scholars and rabbis debated about you know, who is the us that this verse is referring to. But see, what Jesus taught us, Jesus who called God Father, what he taught us about God is that God is in fact a family. Right? That God is a family who makes family. And Jesus also taught us that God himself exists within the context of relationship. And because God is love, love cannot exist apart from a relationship. Right from the very beginning, right in the book of Genesis, we discover that humanity is created out of the overflow of God's generous, self-giving love and his being. And that means that we also are created as beings for relationship, and we are created for family. But see, this wasn't new in Jesus' day. In fact, it's literally on page one of the Bible. What was new in Jesus' day, is even and radical in Jesus' day, is that Jesus chose not to define his family by patrilineal bloodline, but instead by whoever it is that does God's will. Right? Jesus is saying, okay, listen, my family is going to be open to more than just Jewish people. My family is going to be actually open to all people. And this, in fact, is one of the things that Jesus does that leads to his crucifixion and his execution. If you know the story of what happened in the days leading up to Jesus' crucifixion. Right? Jesus is in the temple and he actually says to the religious leaders of the temple, he says, listen, is it not written that my house, meaning the temple, will be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you, right, you religious leaders, you have turned it into a den of robbers. Right? Jesus is actually quoting from the prophet Isaiah. And he's saying to the religious leaders, listen, you've lost the plot line of the story. The whole reason you have the temple in the first place, the one place on earth where both God and humanity can come together in the same place at the same time. The whole reason you have that is so that you will be a light to the nations, that you would be a light to the world. And so for Jesus then to come along and say that whoever does God's will is going to be a part of my family... Right? This was absolutely unthinkable 
to these religious leaders. Jesus is the oldest living male in his family line. He is responsible to God and his village for his mother and his brothers and his sisters and all of his siblings. But Jesus seems to be saying that Jesus is in fact going to give up his blood family in exchange for this new Gentile, this Gentile-loving family, right? which was absolutely unbelievable in Jesus' day. And not only that, Jesus would go on to say that whoever wanted to follow Jesus, that they too needed to give up their allegiance to their blood family in order to be a part of Jesus' new multi-ethnic family. And if you don't do that, Jesus would say, you can't actually be my disciple. This was a radical call in Jesus' day. And the truth is, it's a radical call in our day as well. For a whole bunch of reasons. Not the least of which is that Jesus does not question the strong group approach to a community. And see, this is tremendously at odds with our Western sensibilities. In fact, um, let me have you think about this for a minute. I'm going to read you a new definition of church. And I want you just to think about how this definition of church makes you feel. We're going to change this for our membership class coming up. So you tell me how this makes you feel. In the church, the individual perceives themselves to be a member of the church and responsible to the church for his or her actions, their destiny, their career development, and their lives in general. And the individual person is embedded in the church and is free to do what he or she feels is right and necessary only. Only if that action is in accord with the church norms and only if that action is in the church's best interest. Okay, how many hold your hands up if that kind of makes you freak out a little bit, right? And probably you know, the only thing I did here, probably you noticed, we just simply exchanged the definition we had earlier, and I just changed out the word church for group. So is this how we think? Is this how, is this how we think about church and our connection to church? Am I responsible to the church, right, for, for, for my actions, my destiny, my career development, and even my life? In general, right? Is that how we think? And, and listen, this is not a guilt trip here because I will be the first one to tell you, I do not think this way either, right? But, but the point is, is simply this. This is the call, right, from Jesus to community as a family, right? In fact, um, Jesus' call to us in community as a part of his kingdom, um, this is very different, as you know. Right? This is very different even than what most of us think of when we use the term community. But understanding Jesus' vision for church as family actually helps us to understand two very common counterfeit experiences that probably all of us have had at some point when we think about community. The first is to mistake connectivity for community. Right? All of us know that we are way more connected to each other now than we have ever been before in, in the past. Right? I mean, thanks to text messaging and FaceTime and social media and WhatsApp and email and all that technology that all of us are so grateful for, we're all much more connected than ever before. But at the same time, and perhaps you've noticed this as well, loneliness is on the rise. 
right? In fact, loneliness is actually through the roof. Even before the pandemic happened, researchers were noticing a very, uh, very troubling um, correlation. In fact, it's a direct correlation, a direct correlation between the amount of time that you use the internet for connectivity and the likelihood of depression and loneliness in a person's life. Right, in fact, a, a researcher at MIT by the name of, uh, of Sherry Turkle, um, she said this in her book, Reclaiming Conversation. She goes on to tell us and to explain that face-to-face -face conversation is the most human and humanizing thing that we do. It's where we learn to listen. Right, this is where, she would say, this is where we learn empathy. Now think about even in your own life and in your own relationships, how different do conversations between family members, conversations between friends, how different do those conversations feel online compared to how they feel when you are face to face? Extensive research has been done on the number of connections that any one person can hold on to at, at a point in time relationally. And study after study comes back and says, okay, that number, it's actually called the Dunbar number, comes back and it's 150. Right? That's the most number of actual connections we can maintain at any one point in life. When we think about our social media, we think about the number of followers we have, the number of friends we have, and we think about that number 150. Right? For many of us, the, the number of friends and followers we have, it is significantly higher. In fact, for many of us, it's actually exponentially higher than that number. And so as a result, our connectivity, it is way, way up. And so is our loneliness because our actual community is way, way down. The second mistake that we make is that we oftentimes mistake chemistry for community. Now by chemistry what I mean is that little kind of spark that happens in the back of your brainstem when you meet another person who is very similar to yourself. In fact, um, C.S. Lewis said this, this is a great quote, I don't know where he said it at, I just remember him hearing this, um, that the root of all friendship is you two, you two. Having very close friends, don't miss this, having very close friends is not the same as having community. And see, this is very, very counterintuitive. But there is a fundamental difference that happens in a relationship with another person. Even somebody that you care about deeply. But if you only see that person a couple of times a year, compared to actually seeing that person regularly or routinely face to face, there is a tremendous difference in the community in that relationship. There is a huge difference in the person that actually sees me regularly. Right, when I've committed to too many things, when I've been grumpy to Joe or, or to Nathan or to Autumn, right, when I'm tired and, and I'm overscheduled, right, there's a huge difference when a person sees me day in and day out and my community with that individual than the person that just sees me every once in a while, even if we're very close friends. We can have chemistry with people that we have very little community with, and we can actually have community with people that we have very little chemistry with. Now, that's very counterintuitive, but it's absolutely true. In fact, even in my own life personally, I would tell you that some of the people that God has used the most in the most profound experiences of community for me personally have not necessarily been people that I just naturally have chemistry with. 
So what does this mean when we talk about the, this idea of community for, for us as followers of Jesus? What does this actually look like? If community for a follower of Jesus is not connectivity, and if it's not even chemistry, then what exactly is it? Well, Jesus' most basic vision of church is that of family, right? We say this all the time. Church is not a building, right? Church is not an event that you attend on Sunday morning. Church, according to Jesus, is meant to be a family, and that is meant to be how it is that we actually interact and relate to one another. Think about the the basic practices of a healthy family, right? A healthy family eats together. Right? Albert Borgman, who became very famous studying the decline of the American family and American society in general, um, he once said this. This is a great quote. Fornication is bad. Adultery is bad. But not eating together for dinner is worse. Now, he was not saying that adultery or fornication is fine. What he was saying is that eating together is not an ancillary issue. That actually eating together is significantly important for both a nuclear family, but also for a spiritual family. Right? This is why one of the things we strongly suggest to all small groups is that you actually have a meal together as a part of your time as a group together. It's why we eat together on Wednesday nights. Right? A healthy family, they also they do life together. A healthy family actually spends time together. A healthy family is caring and affectionate both for and with one another. Healthy families actually hold each other accountable. Right? Healthy families um, in the church, Jesus' family is no difference. Right? This is why we say that a key part of actually having a place to belong is not just having a place where we're all accepted for who we are, Right? Absolutely. But in addition, that we're actually loved by our Heavenly Father and the other Jesus followers that we're connected to, to simply be left the way that we are. Because healthy families always live in a tension, in a balance between accountability and acceptance. A healthy family shares resources. A healthy family shares responsibilities. Healthy families, as the Apostle Paul said in Galatians, we looked at it last week, that they bear one another's burdens. Finally, healthy families, they are faithful to one another. So when you think about your community, whoever that is, wherever that is, um, whatever that is, can it be said of you that you eat together, that you do life together, that you, you are caring and you are affectionate with one another, that you hold each other accountable that you are willing to actually have hard conversations in love with one another, that you share resources, you share responsibilities, that you bear one another's burdens, that you're faithful to one another, that you even make decisions together. And if not, if not, would life be better for you if you did have that? Now, if this very simple picture, right, of life together as the family of Jesus, if this sounds like crazy to you and, and you're sitting there and you kind of, arms may not be crossed literally, but they are definitely crossed um, internally and emotionally right now, and you are thinking to yourself, okay, I am not up for that. I am good to, with coming to church every once in a while and having a couple of friends who kind of follow Jesus, you know, when it's convenient and all that. Um, listen, I understand, like, like more than you even know. I totally understand that. Um, I'm not judging you. Right? In no way am I judging you. 
Right? I'm not, not saying that at all. I'm just simply saying, listen, the reason that we all feel that way to some degree or another is because that we have been raised and we are just accustomed with a, a very individualistic culture. Because for any of us to think that being a part of church just simply means participating every once in a while when it fits in my schedule and, oh yeah, I've got a couple of friends there, right? For us to think that that's normal, we did not get that idea from Jesus and we did not get that idea from any of the authors in the New Testament. We got that idea from our own individualistic culture. And so as followers of Jesus, we just need to be honest about that and recognize why we feel tension around this. Because Jesus' version of family, his vision of family, it does not easily align with our Western sensibilities. But listen, to, trust me on this. I'm, I'm your pastor, and I love you, and I care about you. You will not be godly alone. You will not be healthy alone. You, you, you will not grow spiritually alone because God always does big things in small groups, right? Generally speaking, in, in life, both our highest highs and our lowest lows, they always come in the context of relationships because all of us have relational souls. Whether you are an extrovert and you actually draw your energy from the people around you, or you are an introvert like I am, and you draw your energy from lakes and streams, right? The truth is, all of us, right? All of us are, and all of us have relational souls at the very core of our being. And being an introvert does not mean that you do not need relationships. Nothing could be further from the truth. It just simply means that you experience those relationships differently. And the fact that you are an introvert does not mean that you need to change some part of your personality or, or how God has wired you up to be to experience community. That is not true. In fact, the experience of loneliness that all of us have, whether you're an extrovert or an introvert, is actually a proof of the fact that all of us are relational by design. We cannot not be relational. And so consequently, family... It really is the source of both our deepest hurt, but it also is the source of our greatest healing. Now, scientists who study relationships are called psychologists, right? And psychologists tell us that from the time we are in our mother's wombs, that every single one of us, our brains are in fact wired to attach to people. And our understanding of this phenomenon is what psychologists refer to as attachment theory. And this whole idea is predicated on the notion that every single one of us has an attachment system that is hardwired into us by our Creator and our Heavenly Father. And the way that we do or do not attach as babies greatly influences how we will or will not attach to other people as adults later on in life. Now, psychologists have identified four primary ways in which all of us attach. One of those ways is healthy. The other three are not. Okay? Psychologists call a healthy attachment a secure attachment. And a secure attachment happens basically when a child is well-loved, right, well-cared for, not perfectly, 
Not perfectly, because you don't have perfect parents. I'm not a perfect parent. You're not going to be a perfect parent. I don't have perfect parents, right? There's no such thing as perfect parents. That's not what this is about. But basically, well-loved, well-cared for, and basically, the, the child's parents are available to them, both emotionally and physically, right? Not perfectly, just basically. Now, the other three attachments, which are referred to as insecure attachments, are these right here. They are avoidant, anxious, and fearful avoidant. And all three of these types of insecure attachment develop when a child grows up in a home where parents are either unavailable or unreliable, either physically and or relationally. Now, here's the part that is so important and why we're even talking about this in church. This, please don't miss this. If you're counting lights, come on back for just a minute. Scientists tell us that the only way to heal an unhealthy, insecure attachment is through a healthy relationship, a healthy, loving relationship. There is no pill that heals this. There is no 12-step program. There is no book that you can read. Right? Self-awareness is helpful, but even self-awareness does not heal this. The only way to heal an insecure attachment is through a healthy, loving relationship. Because at some level, all three of these are about trust. And all three of these will result in you as an adult not being able to trust yourself, not being able to trust other adults, and or you not being able to trust your Heavenly Father. And Jesus' most basic vision, right, his most basic vision of church is that of family, right? Because, right, because as followers of Jesus, Following Jesus is about God, our Heavenly Father, reparenting us into his family. Reparenting us into the family of God. Because listen, Jesus' family is not a strong group or a weak group. And Jesus' family is not an Eastern family. It is not a Western family. Jesus' family is a kingdom of God family. Because like we said, our highest highs and our lowest lows happen in relationship. And God does his healing work of healing our souls, spiritually, relationally, and emotionally. He always does that in the context of a relationship. And this is why I want you to be connected at a place where you actually belong. This is why we're doing our small group meetups this year. We talked about this last week. There's never been a season or an age in our culture where getting people connected into healthy, functioning groups with authentic community is as important as it is right now. And so that's why I want you to join a meetup, be a part of a meetup this summer. Right? A meetup, if you weren't with us last week, it is simply um, it's, it's a group of people who come together four times over the course of the summer. We'll give you the material. We'll give you the videos to watch. You, you watch them together. You talk about it together. You eat together. And you pray together. And then after the, after the fourth session, the meetup is done. And you get to decide as a group, do you want to continue to meet together and reconnect as a small group later in the fall? Or do you want to be done? And that's fine. Whatever you choose is fine. And so a meetup is simply an opportunity for you to experiment with what it means to be connected in a group. 
Now, a big part of the reason we like to launch groups through meetups in the summertime is because they help to set some healthy expectations around what we're talking about today as it relates to connectivity as well as chemistry. There's a couple of ways that you can be involved in a a meetup. If you want to lead a meetup um, with some people from faith who are in your same age and stage of life, we will help you do that. Or if you would like to meet up with a couple of friends um, that are not a part of faith, we would love for you to do that. In fact, if you've got two friends, if you can push play on a TV, on a VCR, if you still have one of those, a DVD player, if you've got one of those, a phone or a tablet or a computer, then you can lead a meetup. We'll train you, we'll coach you, we'll give you everything that you need. All you need to do is, again, scan this little thing right here, come to one of the meetup meetings on June the 5th or June the 9th, come on the 5th, we'll feed you, we'll feed your kids, we'll watch your kids, we will give them back after an hour. That's it. Now, as we wrap this up, just on a little bit more of a tender and sensitive note for a minute. Some very, very groundbreaking research has been done in the last several years at the University of Texas around the area of trauma and how and why people recover from trauma. And what they notice is probably like you, um, some people go through trauma at a point in life and some people recover from it and then other people, they seem to live their entire life and they never recover. And people wanted to know why. And the hypothesis was basically that it must have something to do with the type of trauma that they experience, which makes a lot of sense. You would assume that. Their research discovered that was completely not true. In fact, recovery had zero to do with the trauma the individual went through. What it was directly tied to was whether or not the person who experienced trauma on the other side of the trauma was connected to a loving group. A loving family, a loving support group, or a loving community. Because it is true, while all of us can be hurt at the deepest level by relationship, all of us can, in fact, be healed at the deepest level through a relationship. Now, if you personally have experienced trauma at some point in your life, doesn't have to be recently, could be any point, And, again, this doesn't have to be even you personally. If you have a family member, you have a friend, if you're watching right now, if you can come to Troy, Michigan, if you can get here, I want you to come to Changes That Heal starting on Thursday, May 26th. This class goes for six weeks. It is $20. It's run by psychologists and counselors. The whole whole six weeks cost 20 bucks. That's just for the material. And we do this because our, st- our, our church has been blessed by a whole pile of counselors and psychologists whose hearts have been wired up by their Heavenly Father to help people heal from some of the deepest hurts that we experience in life in this world. Again, you do not have to be a part of faith to do this. It is open to everyone. If you can get here, you are welcome here. So please sign up, scan this, and take part in the Changes That Heal class coming up. Now, obviously, not everybody is recovering from trauma or has trauma in their lives, and not everybody is dealing with a broken family, right? We get that. The truth is, for many of us, the reason we reject the idea of community is because, um, this is my favorite line, I'm too busy, right? I'm too busy. 
right? I've got kids, I've got sports, I've got kids in sports, which is just like, I can't do anything, right? I get it, I understand that, um, I totally understand that. Or you feel like you've got so many friends, you can't even keep up with the friends you do have, why would I want to make new friends? I can't even do that, okay? Here's the only thing I'm going to say to you. At some point in life, the stage that you are in right now will end. It will end. And in the stage that is coming, you will want to have relationships. And relationships always, always take time. Please do not sacrifice the big things that God does in small groups simply because of busyness now. All of us, all of us need a place where we can belong. All of us need to be known by a community of followers of Jesus who not only see our pain and our hurt and our brokenness, but who point us to the healer of our pain and our hurt and our brokenness. Not only do we need a place where we can tell people what we want and how we feel, but we have people around us who will point us to the one who will tell us what it is that we need to hear. And all of us, all of us, we actually need a community of people. People who will remind us that even when we feel unlovable, that the grace of Jesus is for all of us because Jesus has welcomed you into his kingdom and into his family. Let me pray for us today. Jesus, it is so easy, um, uh, easy for me, maybe not for all of us, but I'll say for me. Jesus, it's so easy for me to miss that when we read that famous line in Matthew's gospel and you tell us that you're here to build the church and the gates of hell, they, they will not prevail against your church. Jesus, it's so easy for me to think that you are talking about a building. And yet that was the farthest thing from your mind. You were talking about a people. A people who would come together, connected to each other and connected to you. People who would love one another and care for one another. People who would bear each other's burdens in such a way, Jesus, that your kingdom would withstand whatever the enemy, whatever hell throws against it that it would not fall. And so Jesus, it is on you. It is on you alone as our Savior and our Redeemer. Jesus, it's on you alone that we want to build our lives. It's on you alone that we entrust with our very self. And so Holy Spirit, my prayer for us today is that you would give us the wisdom to know what to do with the words that we've heard and Holy Spirit, I pray today that you would give to each of us the courage to act on what it is that you're putting in our hearts right now. And Jesus, we pray all of this in your name.